Hey everybody, it's Chris. Welcome or welcome back to the Beyond Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this conversation, would you head to our socials at Beyond Church AU, either on Instagram or Facebook and give us a follow. That's the easiest way to share this content with a friend who might find it helpful. And while you're at it, you can click the link in our description to sign up to our email newsletter. That's the easiest way to stay up to date on everything that's going on around here at Beyond. But in the meantime, I hope this following conversation inspires you to take your next step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Here's a question to get us rolling that you probably didn't think, uh, well, depending on, um, I don't know what you thought, but my guess would be when you came to church on a Sunday, you weren't thinking that this would be the question that would kind of um, get the conversation rolling. But this is the question I want us to consider is, um, why are people who had too much to drink inclined to make bad decisions? Have you ever wondered that? Like, wh- why is that the case, right? Because, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have some stories, oh, probably not, but maybe some friends of yours had some, have some stories, right, from when you were a little bit younger, and maybe they had too much to drink, and maybe you look back, and you're like, oh, they're kind of funny, like, I wouldn't say that in church, but they're kind of funny, right? They're kind of funny. Maybe some of them are kind of sad. Uh, maybe some of the stories are a little bit tragic, um, but here's something most people do not say when they've had too much to drink. They don't wake up and be like, Man, I made some fantastic decisions last night. Like, I am just so stoked that I text them. I am so stoked I had that conversation with her. People don't, like, wake up and be like, I'm so glad when, I was, when I'd had a few too many glasses of red that I sent that email to my boss, okay? No one thinks that. In fact, there are two, two quite well-known rugby league players in Brisbane at the moment who definitely don't follow that. Half of you got that because half of you are Broncos fans. The other half of you are like, sports, yay. Um, you can, you can put that together. But psychologists actually um, tell us that there's, there's actually two main reasons why people who've had too much to drink are inclined to make bad decisions. The first is that when you drink alcohol, uh, it releases norepinephrine in, uh, in the brain, which, uh, which is a stimulant which increases uh, your impulsiveness and decreases your inhibitions. So it increases your impulsiveness, you know, the intrusive thoughts start to win. It decreases your ability to kind of be like, ah, that's not a good decision. That's not a wise thing to do. And so you just do more impulsive things and you say more impulsive things. The other thing um, is that the prefrontal cortex within our brain, the second thing that happens, the center that makes us logical, the the center of our brain that makes us rational, the center in the brain that for guys typically only fully develops by the time we're 25, which means guys, don't let your daughters marry any guys. Anyway, that you can figure that out for yourself. <clears throat> really what it means is that uh, be, as we drink more alcohol, it makes us impaired. And so we lose the freedom or the ability to think rationally. We lose the freedom and the ability to make wise decisions. It's why you, why you wake up in the morning, you know, if you've, or your friends wake up in the morning after a big night or maybe after you used to have big nights and someone would tell you what you did. You'd be like, ah, oh, did I do that? Mmm. Someone would tell you what you said and you're like, oh, I don't remember, I can't. I can't believe I said that. Like, why would I say that? I'd never normally do that uh, when I was sober. And so some of you are like, why are we talking about this? Well, if you're drunk right now, it's pretty obvious why we're talking about this. But if you're not drunk uh, right now, we're going to come back to, and I'll tell you in a moment why I asked that question. Um, because right now we're actually in the middle of this series called Good Call. And uh, this is the third week. We're wrapping it up next week. But all throughout this series, what we've been doing is we've been exploring this often overlooked relationship between good questions and good calls. 
I don't, I don't know about you, maybe, maybe it's just me and my ego, but I know that when I make good calls in my life, whether it's in, in, uh, relationally, whether it's spiritually, whether it's in my career, whatever it might be, I'm tempted to look at that, at that good call and be like, that's because I'm smart, right? Oh, it's because I, you know, it's, it's because I saw a trend that no one else sees. It's because I have this intuition. When really, more often than not, it's because we ask good questions in the lead up to the calls that we make. And, and the good news is we, we discovered this in part one is that all of us have like a list of questions that we ask, whether, whether it's conscious, whether it's subconscious, we all have a list of questions that we ask before we make big decisions in life. And all of our questions, our lists vary, you know, it might be like, will this be fun? Will I like this? Is it illegal? Will anyone get hurt? If someone finds out, how do I cover it up? Like there's all sorts of questions that we ask. And really our goal with this series is not to say that your questions are bad, not to say that you shouldn't ask your list of questions. All we're trying to do with this series is we're trying to say, hey, here's four really, really helpful questions. Here's four questions that you could add to the list of questions that you already ask. And so anytime you have a big decision to make, here's four questions that will help you slow down, that will help you pause, take stock, and then hopefully make some better calls. Now, like we said, this is, this is not like a magic bullet, okay? It's not like, ask these four questions, never make a bad call ever again. Like, that's not how life works, okay? No one, if, if, if someone says, ask these four questions, you'll never have a problem again, you should run, okay? Because that's not how life works. But what we did say is, if you begin to integrate these four questions into the way you make decisions, you will, more often than not, make more good calls than you make bad calls. And so in part one, we looked at what's called the integrity call. And we said the question to ask when it comes to the integrity call is, in what areas and in what ways am I deceiving myself? We said, you know, if you really want to drill down, if you really want to get practical with this one, go to two to three close trusted people in your life and ask them this question. And then compare their answers with your answers and start to see, like, is there any patterns? Is there anything that lines up? Is there any blind spots that they reveal to you? Then last week, we looked at this thing called the legacy call. And we said the question to ask when it comes to the legacy call is, what story do I want to tell? And see, most of us, as we live through life, we, we think of our life in terms of current events. Most of us, you know, we, we don't think of our life in terms of the idea that, hey, one day, right now, this current event, this season that you're going through is going to become a chapter of your story or it's going to become a part of your story. And someday, maybe someone will ask you about that chapter or about that part, and you're going to have a story that's associated with that chapter and that season of your life. And so we just said, hey, why don't we start to think about the story that our life is telling right now? And so we said, why don't you ask this question? What story do I want to tell when this season is nothing more than a story, when this chapter is nothing more than a story? What do I want to tell? And if you want to listen to those in full you want to go back over them the easiest way to do that is because you're all smart go to wherever you listen to podcasts type in beyond church au there'll be a green b and you know what to do once you get there right like you can just figure it out the series is called good call you can you can uh, you can make your way from there and all of that sets us up to bring us to the question that we're looking at this week and the question that we're looking at this week is what we call the conscience call the conscience call that's why i started talking about drunk people right because drunk people, um, drunk people, we know those, those reasons psychologically why drunk people have a hard time listening to their conscience. Because the norepinephrine's released, the prefrontal cortex doesn't work, and so that, that thing that would normally kind of their conscience, when it would normally ding, they've dulled the senses. 
They've, they've made it really hard for themselves to listen to that ding of their conscience. The question is, though, what happens when we're sober and we do this? Right, because so many of us, and, and maybe you've been in this situation, I know, I know I've definitely been in this situation, but what is it about us sober folk who when we feel our conscience ding, or, or maybe you might feel that like that, you don't know exactly the words, but you kind of call it a gut feeling, or you might say like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know why, but I feel weird about this decision, or I feel off about this decision. H- how do we explain away when, when we just kind of ignore all those warning signs? How do, how do we explain away when we've got friends or family or people in our life or co-workers who, who kind of point out maybe the, the not-so-great decision we're about to make and our conscience dings and we ignore it? How do we justify that when we're completely sober? Because like I said, drunk people have a reason. And so the question that goes with this conscience call for us is this question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there a tension that deserves my attention? When I was, um, I don't really know how old, right? Like some, somewhere in the ballpark of like 10 to, 10 to 13. Uh, and I don't know if, if you ever did this, but like when I was like in that ballpark, whenever I had a big decision to make, and let's keep it in context, okay? As big of a decision as a 10-year-old is making at that point in time, which is usually like what soccer team do I want to play on or like questions like that. I would go to my mum, mainly my mum, and I would, I would outline the decision to her. And I would say to her, Mum, what do you think I should do? And every parent knows. Like, you know when you ask, even people today, when you ask your coworker or your friend, really when it's like, hey, what do you think I should do? Really what you're asking is, tell me what to do, okay? Tell me what to do, help me make the decision, because I need some help, and then worst case scenario, if it goes bad, I'll blame you, right? What, tell me what to do, what should I do? And my mum, it was infuriating at the time, so infuriating, she would, she would always sit down, she'd listen to it, She'd go, well, honey, what do you think you should do? But like, mom, that's not what I wanted to hear. Like, what you're supposed to say, mom, is here's what you should do. And it, it bugged me so much as a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old, but it's actually something I'm really grateful for as I, as I, got up, as I grow older, right? Because one of the things it taught me is that when there is that ding within you, when there is that conscience that that little red flag that thing that goes off with inside you it's when it, there is a tension what my mom was saying is hey you shouldn't brush past it you shouldn't just move it to the side you should actually pay attention to it in other words you should let it if there's a tension that surfaces you should let it bother you and people who, who work in this area people who are far smarter than me would know all the science behind it but what people who work in this area tell us is that when when our brain alerts us to that when our brain gives us that red flag or that ding or we feel that sensation really it's our brain's way of getting us to see or, or saying to us hey pay attention pay attention pay attention to the tension that's, that you're feeling within you right now but there's another challenge with this, right? right? There's another challenge with this whole setup is because sometimes we can be making a big decision. Sometimes we can be getting everything just squared away and the plan kind of starts to fall into place in our mind. And we're like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And you start to build it out. And then someone comes along, don't they? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, your partner, maybe it's your husband or your wife, your coworker, your friend. And then they ask one of those really annoying questions. They might ask a question like, oh... What will your boss think? Or they'll be like, is, 
is that technically legal? And you're like, well, technically, but like, let's not make it. And they ask that annoying question. And then all of a sudden, what happens when they ask that question is you feel attention. You feel attention that wasn't there before, but now because of their question, you start thinking about it. And that you're just like so annoyed at them that they brought that up or they asked that question. And in the moment when you start to feel that, typically what we're tempted to do, right, is we can have a tendency to dodge the truth by discounting the truth teller. You ever done that? You're like, oh, well, they don't really know my situation. Oh, they don't really know the full story. They don't know what it's like to live with him or to live with her or to work with them or to be a client with him. Well, they don't really know my kids. I know they know their kids, but they don't know my kids. And so we have this tendency to dodge by discounting the truth teller. And there's actually a technical term for this. There's a fancy technical term. I'm going to share it with you so you can, be, you can know this technical term. It's called the genetic fallacy. And the genetic fallacy is like a fault in our way of thinking. And the genetic fallacy is this. The genetic fallacy is accepting or rejecting an argument on the basis of its origin. In other words, who it came from, where it came from, rather than its content. And something that I find a little bit, a little bit kind of sad, I think, about the current cultural moment that we live in, is this is just so the norm. Right, this is almost a valid way of discrediting someone's position. You ever heard people like, oh, well, they're liberal, so, or they're progressive, you know, or, or they're bigots, or they're woke, they got that woke ideology, or they're Christians. And really, anytime someone says that, really what it's doing is saying, mm, look at the origin, mm, look who's saying it, look where it's coming from, look at their values, you know that. And really, all that is doing is pointing out where. The thought came from. It does nothing to talk about the content. It does nothing to talk about the tension that arises within you. It's simply a way to dismiss it without giving it the due care and due attention that it deserves. Now, this is not me kind of like bagging on culture or having a rant on culture. Really, all I do this is, is to kind of highlight and to say, hey, if something bothers you, let it bother you. Like, it doesn't matter who brought it up. It doesn't matter who highlighted it. But if there's something within you that bothers you, then, then let it bother you. Let it bother you enough that you would face it. Let it bother you enough that you would begin to deal with it. Let it bother you enough that you would stare in the eye until you figure out why it's bothering you. And then you would do something about it. In other words, this is back to that, our big idea. Pay attention to the tension. And if you don't pay attention to the tension, we're going we're to look at what happens to that in a minute. Um, but we're going to look at that through the lens of this fascinating um, narrative of the life of the second king of the nation of Israel. And chances are, even if you uh, couldn't name that person off the top of your head, and even if you didn't grow up in church, you would know who the, uh, the second king of the nation of Israel is. You just probably didn't know they were a king. Uh, because this person who is the second king of the nation of Israel is King David. Uh, you're like, I don't know any King David. Um, you might not know him as King David. You might, not, you might not know him as the guy who defeated the big giant called Goliath, like David and Goliath. And you're like, oh yeah, I heard of that. Like, yeah, well, you just didn't know that David actually grew up to become the second king of the nation of Israel. And the, the exchange we're going to look at this morning is this moment in David's life where there was a very real opportunity that, where he began to pay attention to a tension that he was feeling. But in order to, to see why that tension arises, and, and just to kind of help you if you're not familiar with, with David's story, there were some steps that led up to this tension arising in David's life that we can use as an example in our life. Because David doesn't step onto the pages of history as a king. David steps onto the pages of history 
as a shepherd boy. And when David is, is a shepherd boy, a prophet visits his house. And this prophet, this is, um, this is what ChatGPT came up with, is a prophet. This is David, the shepherd boy. And uh, this prophet comes to David's family and to David's house, and he says to David, hey, well, you are going to be, David, the next king of Israel. Which most people would be stoked about that news. They're like, yes, I'm going to be a king one day. The problem was, though, is that there was already a king of Israel. And in that time, it's, it's not great for someone to kind of go around being like, I'm going to be a king if there already is a king, right? That kind of annoys the current king. Um, but the current king of Israel at the time was a king called King Saul. And he was a terrible leader. He was a terrible king. The people of Israel didn't really like the king. And so David kind of felt like, hey, it's just a matter of time until I grow up, until things happen, that I become a king. And as David, uh, time goes by and David fights the, uh, the Philistine giant named Goliath. Now, I, if you, for those of you who are familiar with the story, I know he's holding a bow and arrow, okay? I know. I don't know how many times I tried to get chat GPT, I would put in the prompt would be like, change the bow and arrow in David's hands to a slingshot. It just kept giving me a bow and arrow. And so once I'd spent like 20 minutes, I was like, this is far too, this is taking me way too long. Um, and also don't ask me why he's younger than he is in the first picture, okay? I don't, I don't understand why ChatGPT does the thing that it does. It's just the image, okay? And so David uh, defeats this Philistine giant called Goliath, and his, his popularity skyrockets, right? He becomes more popular than Saul. The nation of Israel is in love with David. They want him to become king, and that, as you can imagine, creates more friction and more tension with Saul to the point that Saul actually tries to kill him, and David becomes a fugitive. He runs away. He becomes this fugitive. The only problem was, by the time David became a fugitive, he was already known as being this fierce warrior, as being this incredible leader. And so people wanted to follow David. And so while David is a fugitive in the wilderness, he gets this small army, this group of people who begin to follow him. And that's kind of a cool thing on the one hand, but it's also not the greatest thing on the other because the type of people who would follow a fugitive are typically fugitives themselves, right? And so David has this small army of fugitives that are like wandering in the wilderness. They're wandering in the En Gedi Desert. And King Saul is still chasing them, still still trying to find them, still trying to kill uh, David and and get rid of this person who's supposed to succeed him as the king of Israel. And one day Saul gets intel that David and his men are somewhere around this region in the En Gedi Desert. And so Saul gets together 3,000 soldiers. And the logistics of that would have almost been nearly impossible to do in that, at that point in history to get 3,000 soldiers in one place at one time. But the reason he did that is because David was such a threat to him. This was like a big show of might. This was like, I want to get rid of this guy because I don't want there to be any chance of him taking the throne from me. And so he takes this massive, massive army and he walks into the En Gedi Desert. And the En Gedi Desert is this place on the one hand that's, that's dry, that's arid, that's harsh, but it's also got these, these pockets of oasis. But the, point, the part where our story takes place is on one of the rocky outcrops and, and um, Saul and his men are making their way up one of the rocky outcrops. There was caves everywhere. And Saul is just like you and me in that he had to go to the bathroom. And so he, the, the call of the wild came, and Saul just said to his crew, hey guys, I just, um, 
I need to do my uh, royal business uh, in this cave. I'm just going to jump in over here. Uh, you guys keep moving, and we'll, I'll catch up with you in a minute. And so Saul walks into this cave, uh, gets ready to do his business, takes off his outer robe, um, and then starts to do his business. David and his soldiers had heard, they got word because they had their own intel going, um, counter-espionage, if you will. They had their own intel going. And so they, uh, David heard this. He goes, guys, we need to scatter. We're going to scatter into the caves. We're going to scatter into the hillside. What we're going to do is we're going to watch from the caves. Saul's men pass through. And then once they're kind of down over the ridge, we're going to regroup together. We're going to dip out in the other direction. They'll never have seen us. And Saul, uh, David and a few of his men are in the back of one of these big caves. And they see this person walk in the front of the cave. And obviously, it's, there's a light shining in, so there's this silhouette come in. And as this person comes further and further into the cave, they start to realize, this is King Saul. King Saul has chosen the very cave that David and his men are hiding out in to do his business. And Saul comes in, comes to a point, turns his back on David and his men, sheds his outer robe, and begins to do his business. And David... Well, we don't really know if David was thinking this is a sign. We definitely know David's men are thinking this is a sign. Okay, Remember, these guys are fugitives. And this is what David's biography tells us about what David's men were thinking in this moment. It says, they, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're all kind of hyping him up. They're like, this is the moment, Dave. This is the moment, mate. And, and the conclusion that everyone is kind of drawing, that they want David to draw, it's simply this. It's, hey, you kill the king, become the king. Kill the king, become the king. And just, just so we're clear, this is not a big deal for David. Like, David is a warrior. Think like SAS style. Like, David is a warrior. It is no big deal for him to sneak up on someone and end their life, especially someone who's not suspecting it and is going to the bathroom. This is not a challenge for David. But for whatever reason, David feels this tension with inside of him. We're not, we're not sure why there's this tension, but David does what so many of us do. He just ignores it. He's like, eh, whatever. And he starts to come out of his hiding place and sneak his way across the cave in order to get to King Saul. He begins to draw his dagger. And we don't know how close he gets. He, he gets kind of close, but for whatever reason, in between when he comes out of hiding, as he's drawn his dagger, as he gets close to Saul... He starts to pay attention to that tension even more. And he starts to ask a question. He starts to go, hang on a minute. Um, what am I doing? Like, this is, this is not a fair fight. Like, I'm a warrior. This is a guy going to the bathroom. This is, this is not like we're mano y mano on the battlefield. This is cold-blooded murder, what I'm about to do. And he starts, he starts to think about this. He starts to go, well, hang on a minute. Who put Saul on the throne? What, wasn't it God? Don't I believe that God put Saul on the throne? And so if God put Saul on the throne, then, then why am I about to, to do something or stop something that, that I myself believe God did? He goes, this can't, be, this can't be God's plan. And despite the pressure he was feeling, he begins to change course a little bit. And this is where David's story and our stories kind of intersect is because as David was making his way across the cave to Saul, David didn't know the outcome of what his actions were about to do. David thought it was kill the king, become the king. David thought it was like take Saul's life, become the king. But the reason David 
began to pay attention to that tension, the reason that we should all pay attention to that tension is, or the reason we often don't, rather, we ignore it, is because we believe we can predict the future. We kind of think to ourselves when we're about to make a decision, we're like, oh, I don't need to pay attention because it's kind of like David, kill the king, become the king. It's kind of like, oh, well, I make that decision. Here's obviously what's going to happen. Here's, here's exactly the outcome. But if you think about it, just think about this practically. Ever been disappointed? If you've ever been disappointed, what you have experienced is a moment where you didn't predict the future, where, you've, where you had it in your mind. You're like, this is the way it's going to go. This is what's going to happen. This is how they're going to respond. And then they didn't, or it didn't turn out the way. And then what happened is you got disappointed, and you got disappointed simply because you mispredicted. And we've all been there, right? We've all been there. And David listens. He begins to listen. He goes, hang on a minute. I, I don't think I can predict the future as well as I think I can. And what happens in that moment is he begins to become conscience-stricken. He starts to play out the scenario. He goes, hang on a minute. Like, what if I do kill the king and become the king? Like, like what am I going to say when my grandchildren are sitting on my lap on the throne? And they're like, hey, granddad, will you tell us again how you became king? He's like, then I have to be like, yeah, well, I killed a guy while he was taking a poop. Like, <laughs> that's not a great story. He's like, no one's going to be like, oh, wow, you are so heroic. Oh, wow, you mean like you're a warrior and you killed someone while they were going to the toilet? Like, awesome, I want to follow you, bro. He starts to play it out and he goes, ah, this isn't, this isn't the story I want to tell. And so what he does is he actually changes course a little bit. He goes up to Saul's robe that he's discarded with his dagger and he cuts off a corner with it. And he goes back to his men and he's hiding with them. And, and they're all kind of looking at him, right? Like everyone. And they're like, what? Like, what are you? Like, and you can imagine because they couldn't talk that loud. And they're like, they're pointing. And David whispers. He's like, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Now, I wasn't there. Like this, you know, um, Samuel doesn't tell us. Samuel's David's biographer. He doesn't tell us. But I just imagine that there's someone in that cave with David who's a fugitive who's like, awesome. The Lord forbid you. The Lord didn't forbid me. Give me the dagger, right? I'm going. And the only reason I assume that happened is because David gets angry. And we know that David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, right? Someone's being like, give it to me, David. I'll take care of it for you, man. And Saul left the cave and then he went on his way. And this is where this dramatic moment unfolds because Saul and his men make their way down this rocky outcrop and it's treacherous and they finally get to the bottom of the valley. And Saul starts to hear his name being called. And he looks back up on the hill that they've just come down and he sees David standing in the entrance, the very cave that he was at, holding this piece of cloth up and it matches Saul's. And you can imagine Saul was like quickly looking and he pulls it and he sees, he's like, oh my. And he realizes in that moment what happened. And everyone in that 3,000 army realized as well. Once again, David was the hero. Once again, David didn't take matters into his own hands. And David yells this kind of like mini speech down the hill or down the valley to Saul. And he finishes it by saying this. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let God determine the outcome of this. Th there's an outcome I would have liked to happen. There was a way I would have wanted this to happen. But I'm going to let God judge between you and me. And David said, I'm not going to let my bad excuses excuse my bad behavior. 
He's like, I'm not going to get to this point where I just sort of think like, oh, I had some excuses. I kind of built myself up and then I acted poorly. David's like, that's not going to be my story because I paid attention to the tension. I mean, David couldn't know that just a few months later, Saul would go into battle with the Philistine army. David wasn't to know that just a few months later, a Philistine archer who is just trying to fire in amongst the Israelite army just to kind of uh, scare people or scatter people a little bit, would time his arrow so perfectly that it would just split in between Saul's armor and mortally wound him. David wasn't to know that because Saul had such an ego that he wasn't going to be captured by the Philistines, and so he fell on his sword and he died. And then word begins to reach the citizens of Israel. The king is dead. And everyone's like, this is David's opportunity. Get David in. Bring David back from the wilderness. And they brought David back. And David became the second king of the nation of Israel. All without becoming a murderer. Now, I don't know what David was thinking in that moment when all of this came to fruition. But if I was David, I know what I would have been thinking. I would have kind of said to God, hey God, it would have... It would have been kind of good if you just give me a heads up, right? It would have been really great if in that cave, you just sort of like just nudge me and be like, hey, bro, just hold on for a couple more months because I'm going to get a Philistine archer to to do the job for you. It's going to be okay. You just got to trust me. And maybe you've been in situations or circumstances where you feel that tension. You're like, oh, I know the right thing to do. I know what I want to do. But you're just kind of like, God, would you just tell me how this is going to end out if I make this decision? Unfortunately, that's just not the way life is. That's just not the way the world works. And so what God has given us and what we can use is paying attention to the tension, paying attention to our conscience, paying attention to that little thing that dings and we can't put our finger on it, but we're like, ah, that bothers me and I need to figure out why. And so the question for us to ponder this week or the full Monday, which is really just, the practical thing that you can do this week based on everything we've spoken about is to, to think about this question or consider this question in your life. Is there a tension that deserves your attention? Right now, currently at this point in your life, is there a tension that you feel at work or maybe in your marriage, maybe in the relationship with your children, maybe in some career or some financial aspect where you're like, ah, For whatever reason, I can't put my finger on it. I can't put my finger on why I'm feeling that, but I know it's there underneath the surface. Is there a tension that you need to actually take some time pondering? It might actually just be God's way of protecting you. It might actually be God's way of inviting you into an opportunity to make a better decision than the one you would if you just rushed past all the decisions that you were going to make. But the reality is you'll never know And just like David, you'll never discover what that tension is unless you take time to face it, figure it out, and let it bother you until you either face it, deal with it, or it doesn't bother you anymore. So we're going to pick up there next week. I'd encourage you to ask that question this week. But before we uh, we wrap up, I'd love to pray for us. Jesus, in the moment, it is so much easier said than done to pay attention to the tension. And the reality is, this is the incredible thing when we when we look at uh, the stories that make up the Bible, is that these are not stories of people who lived lives that we can't relate to. These are stories of people who faced the same tensions, the same challenges, and they were tempted to just brush past them. In fact, David began to brush past it. 
but he caught himself. And so I pray for us that we would, even if we're tempted to brush past it, maybe even if we've begun to brush past that tension, that we would actually pull ourselves up, that we would pay attention to that tension and we would begin to listen to the way in which you're guiding us, the way in which you're challenging us, maybe the, which, the way in which you're protecting us in the midst of this season. And we pray that we would do it by the strength of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, thanks so much for listening. And hey, if you live in the Griffin, Marumba Downs, North Lakes, or Moreton Bay region, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend environments. You can find out more by heading to our website, beyondchurch.com.au. You'll find directions, service times, and what you can expect, as well as information on our Upstreet Kids Club, which is our primary school-aged environment, and Infinity Youth, our high school-aged environment. That website, beyondchurch.com.au.